Well, I am thrilled uh, to be welcoming to the stage Larry Short. Larry is our former head of elders, who is now currently on furlough sabbatical. Uh, we, we fired him mandatorily per the Constitution uh, to give him a season of rest. But he has long had a throwaway line about uh, sharing the gospel via a mushroom, and I really wanted to hear what he has to say. So today is the day that Larry's going to share with us. Let me pray for you. Thank you. Dear God, Lord, I thank you for my brother. I thank you for his heart for you. I thank you for uh, the, the work and the labor that he has poured into your word uh, this week and over his life. And I just pray that Today, your wisdom would shine through, that this would be uh, encouraging, that this would be edifying, that this would be a challenging invitation for us to see who you are and to praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ryan, and thank you for taking a risk on mushrooms. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, My name's Larry, and uh, my wife Darlene and I have been uh, attending Elam for 26 years now, believe it or not, and uh, it's been a huge privilege and a joy. Uh, You you all know that God has created each of us unique, right? (laughs) Sometimes we call that weird, sometimes we call that odd. I prefer to call it unique. Um, And I... This is a little scary for me this morning because I'm bearing my soul a little bit about what's unique and, and weird and odd about me. And there are basically, other than my wife Darlene, whom I love with all my heart, and our, my kids and our friends, um, there are th- three things in my life that you need to understand about me that are kind of unique. They're things that drive me and things I'm very interested in. I'm going to give you a window into my world this morning. And those three things are... God's word and the way he speaks to us. And one of, the, one of the privileges and joys I have is attending this church and sitting under Pastor Ryan's teaching, who I think he just opens windows for me in terms of God's story. It's amazing. And uh, so it's, it's really scary to do what he normally does up here. <laughs> but I'm going to give it my best shot. Another thing is uh, writing and communication. Uh, my career with World Vision for t- 25 years was as a writer and a webmaster and editor. Enjoyed that a lot. It was a huge blessing in my life. I've been re- retired now for three years, believe it or not, and I'm continuing with my writing and trying to figure out how to integrate that into the third thing which I really enjoy, which is, is the natural world. Uh, from astronomy, as you'll hear some about today, and the universe, and all the way down to mushrooms. I am a fun guy, as Jeff said. <laughs> Thank you. Stole that line from me. And, uh, and so I'll just give you a quick window into how I became that unique person God created me to be. And, and, what, and I'm going to try to tie those three things together for you this morning. How God speaks to us through his word, um, writing and communication, and in particular the natural world. And my text from Psalm 19 will highlight that for you. So first of all, I know it's really crazy to like mushrooms. People either, uh, either love them or hate them, it seems like. So I'm going to let you know kind of how and why I fell into that. And it wasn't until we arrived here in 1995 from Southern California. And uh, I recognized that Pacific Northwest is one of the world's most beautiful, fantastic places in terms of nature and the natural world. And I wanted to uh, convey that to our children, Nathan and Amanda, who were uh, teenagers, young teenagers at the time. And so I began trying to figure out, to brainstorm, what could we do outside that would, would really help us 
to uh, learn about and enjoy the Northwest. First, we tried salmon fishing. I don't know how many salmon fishermen there are in here. Um, salmon fishing is great. I was bored by it <laughs> because I'd fished in Alaska, and it's not quite as good here, waiting for something to bite on your hook uh, that you can't see. And so uh, we kind of moved on from that. And I read somewhere that um, the Pacific Northwest is one of the, the best places in the world for um, edible, exotic mushrooms. And we're going to talk about the edible kind today, not about the other kind. I, have a, I run a family-friendly business called MushroomObsession.com, which will tell you everything about me <laughs> in the title. My wife says, you are obsessed. And I, I say, yes, guilty as charged. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to learn a little bit about that today. But I, I, I started reading about it, uh, took my kids out uh, hunting. They started to learn to love it and enjoy it, and we all fell in love with fungi. So... Uh, that's kind of how God got that start in my life. So the question is, why am I obsessed with mushrooms? Um, if you th when you think about it, a mushroom is something like a treasure that you would hunt for in a field. And it's a beautiful place to hunt, out there in the rainforest of the Northwest. And some mushrooms love to hide. The good news is no mushrooms run. So once you find them, you got them, right? You bag them. And uh, it's something that if you find the mushroom you're looking for, some of them are bright and they pop out, and others are really hard to find. If you find the mushroom you're looking for, you can collect that responsibly, and you can cook it up, and you have yourself a wonderful meal. Mushrooms, like many things that... Uh, you buy in the supers, you, you buy tomatoes in the, in the grocery store, and they're like, they're okay, right? And mushrooms in the grocery store are okay, but if you raise your own fresh tomatoes, pick them, they've got that smell and that, that flavor, if you like tomatoes, that, that's fantastic. It's, it's a world above. And mushrooms are the same way. Some of the mushrooms that you can pick out there are just amazing in terms of edibility. The downside, of course, is mushrooms have a bad rap for killing people. <laughs> And we all know that, right? And some people uh, look at me and go, how on earth could you hunt mushrooms? Because, you know, aren't you afraid of getting something that could kill you? And we'll talk about that in a little while, about in terms of mushroom hunting, uh, and part of the process of respecting mushrooms is really learning what you're hunting for and making 100% positive identification so you don't eat the wrong mushroom. Good news is, I don't know if you know this, only about 3% of all the species of mushrooms out there are poisonous. That means 97% are not. Now, many of those 97% simply don't taste good, but, but there is a large percentage of mushrooms that both taste good and they're good for you, they're wonderful to eat. And so, there are thousands of uh, species of mushrooms out there. I've read in, in worldwide there's something like 16,000 species of mushroom. And I think 11,000 of those exist here in the Pacific Northwest, and they're called macrofungi, which are mushrooms large enough to see without a microscope, basically. And uh, I obviously don't know all thousands of, of varieties of mushrooms. My son might, he's really good at this, but, um, you know, I've learned about two dozen that, are, that I can hunt for and eat and find up here and collect, and I've, I've learned very carefully about three varieties that can kill you. The bad news is those three varieties, most of them grow in your yard, and they look, look like store-bought mushrooms. So I would recommend if you have small children or pets, periodically sweep your yard and just get rid of any mushrooms you find in your yard just to make, make, keep them safe. So I have had a lot of fun learning about hunting and eating delectable wild mushrooms. 
And I just want to tell you about, uh, just returned from my fourth uh, road trip across the country. My son-in-law, Mike, and I have been doing this for uh, a number of years. And the, the photo that you're looking at is, is the logo on the, the backside of our RV. We take that across the country. This is uh, me standing in front of uh, Devil's Tower, Wyoming. If you've ever been there, it's really cool. The movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was uh, filmed there. And uh, we, we've traveled that together, Mike and I. And then uh, I've traveled back either uh, with Darlene or, or by myself or with my good friend, um, Dr. David Lingenfelter, whom you all know. And um, the photo, I think, we, you've got a photo of Mike here. Uh, this was in our recent trip. There was a, uh, some of the best mushrooms in the world called fire morels grow in burn areas. There's something about a forest fire at a certain altitude that stresses the mushroom, which is already living in the soil, and it causes it to fruit. And so the, the mushrooms that you pick, that you see Mike holding in this photo, are essentially the fruit of the mushroom. It's, it's hoping to reproduce itself because it's stressed, right? And Morel, he's holding uh, one of the first morels that we found. In the next photo, you'll see we found about 200 plus morels during about six hours of hunting on our way east to Pennsylvania, where they live. And Mike is, is sorting through those here. Um, also, I wanted to sh just compare this to a previous hunt that I'd done with a couple of guys here at Elam during a men's retreat. Uh, Y'all, I think, know Sebastian and Eric. I warned Eric I'd be talking about him. We hunted up in a canyon for hours, and we found one little teeny morel, and Eric is never going to let me hear the end of that, as you can see from this photo. <laughs> but on our last trip, Mike and I did a lot better. And then when I returned with uh, Dr. Dave Lingenfelter, who I think is watching the live stream on this, uh, we got to hunt again. And Dave, while we were hunting, I was out in the forest here. He was, he was back by the RV, and he saw a uh, female elk, an elk cow, walk right between him and I and follow me out into the forest. And I never saw her, so she must have been watching me. But uh, in the next photo, you'll see a, a herd of, this is the same exact meadow that Dave was sitting and looking out over. And when my son Nathan and I had hunted in this area about 15 miles east of Mount Rainier up in the mountains, we saw uh, in the evening this herd of bull elk come down and graze, and coyotes were going, and then it got dark and the stars came out. Obviously, one of the things I love about mushroom hunting is not just mushrooms. I enjoy mushrooms, but you get out in nature and you see stuff like this, and you see the stars, and you think, this is amazing, and you're doing it, you're, it it's, it's healthy, you're out there hiking around in the woods, which is good for you, and uh, you're doing it with friends and people that you love, and it's, it's very cool, so I enjoy that. Um, I talked a little bit about macrofungi. I'm speaking of large fungus. I want to show you the next image. This is Mike and my our first trip out. We stopped in a spot in the forest in northeast Oregon where there's this thing called the humongous fungus. Have you guys ever heard about this, the humongous fungus? So this is a single mushroom organism that uh, is, scientists think is the largest single living organism on planet Earth. It weighs approximately a thousand times the largest animal, which is a sperm whale, right? So think about a thousand sperm whales. That's a pretty big organism. All you can see, if you look in this photo, there's Mike and I in the RV, and, and, and to um, the right of the RV, there's a couple of dead trees. There's about a three-square-mile area in, in Maller National Forest in, in northeast Oregon where most of the trees are dying. And every fall, these little honey mushrooms pop out of the trees, and they're good to eat. You can collect them, and you can cook them up and eat them. And that honey mushroom is actually, they've done DNA testing. It's the largest animal on the planet. It's enormous. It's 
thousands of years old, and it's growing at the rate of three inches per year. It's expanding, and it will probably be doing that for thousands of years. I don't even think they could stop it if they wanted to.、Um, mushrooms are amazing. To me, <laughs> they're just the tip of the iceberg for those of us who believe what Scripture teaches. That God created all that exists, and the more we learn about the world around us, the more we grow in awe and inspiration for its Creator. Right? And as I listened to Pastor Ryan's sermon、uh, last week, he was talking about how God speaks through His Word, and we know that God speaks to us through His Word, uh, Psalm one.、Uh, we know that He speaks to our hearts through His Holy Spirit and to our consciences. And Psalm 19 talks about another way that God speaks through His creation, and so we're going to read that together. But I am so glad He speaks, and I know that you are too, because as Jesus says, when God speaks, He shows us the way, He tells us the truth, and He makes accessible to us life. And we're going to unpack exactly what that means a little bit this morning. So let's read it together: Psalm 19, one through four. I'll read it for us this time. The heavens declare the glory of God; the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech; night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech; they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth; their words to the ends of the world. This passage has always fascinated me. It almost seems like it contains a contradiction. It says they have a voice, they speak, and then it says they have no voice, they don't speak, but they speak. <laughs> you wrestle with that, right? What's what's it saying? And the psalmist focused on one particular and magnificent interest of mine, and that's astronomy. That's the heavens. And the word for heavens in Hebrew. Here is actually the same word used in Genesis one when it says God created the expanse, and the word literally is the expanse. I was in、uh, when I was in Pennsylvania with my、uh, family on their my my daughter and her husband have a, a little farm, three acre farm.、Uh, it's out kind of in the country, away from the lights. I went out at night and I looked up. This wasn't exactly the image that I saw, although I've seen this in the southern hemisphere. But I looked up at the stars and the planets that were coming out, and I was just Awestruck, and, and and let me tell you, we don't see stars most places around here the way we should be. I think because of the cloud cover and whatnot. But they were just so many stars and planets I could see, and then I saw lights twinkling low, down lower, and so I looked down. And、uh, we don't have fireflies here, or or、um, lightning bugs. They call them back east in the Midwest, but. On my daughter's farm in Pennsylvania, the lightning bugs were coming out, and they they have these bright green flashes, and they zip along like little comets, and then they disappear. And this is going on everywhere. This is a lightning bug. If you go to the next slide, you can see an image of lightning bugs in the forest all together. It's amazing. It's a, a photochemical thing that's happening. They start down low, and then they ascend as the evening grows on and dark grows. They ascend up into the trees. It's magnificent to watch. So as I was standing there, reflecting on them, reflecting on the the lightning bugs here and the stars above, and reflecting on this passage, that the heavens declare the glory of God, I came to a realization:、um, 
The heavens or the expanse isn't simply the sky above our heads. It isn't simply what we can see up there. Sometimes you can't even see it. Sometimes it's day or cloud cover or whatever. It's still there. But the heavens, the expanse, is all around us. It's what we live in. It includes us. It includes life here on planet Earth. It includes those fireflies. It includes fungi. <laughs> it includes even the smallest things that God created. It includes us, as tiny as we are on this planet compared to the rest of the universe. I'm going to read, read you those verses in um, Genesis chapter 1 that talk about the expanse, because I think there's something here that God wants us to unpack. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. That's verse 14. Now, we all understand, I think, the Bible was not intended to be a science textbook, right? But it was, or a you know, scientific treatise, obviously, but it, it, it fundamentally was an account by people, by witnesses at the time of what they were seeing. And it was, the language that they used was language that they shared the experience with people around them who lived thousands of years ago. Even so, I find these verses a really remarkable description of what we now know about the universe and how it came into being. And you all have heard the term Big Bang, probably. That's no longer in vogue scientifically. <laughs> Scientists frequently kind of change their perspective on things as they learn more. The term they're using now is called the Big Expansion. And it really was a Big Bang because this expansion driven by powerful energy that exploded the universe and all the matter in it outward happened in a initially in a very, very short period of time, literally milliseconds, and that fits my definition of a bang, but they're not calling it the big expansion because they want to help us understand the fact that not only did the universe expand in its very early days, but it's still expanding, and we're going to talk about why that is in a moment. But it's a remarkable description, these verses in Genesis, because it talks about how God sort of separated out elements of similar weights. He separated the water from the land, and obviously that's talking about uh, the oceans on the earth and the landforms. But I think there's a deeper principle here. We understand that the, um, in looking at the universe, that the stars and coalesced from lighter elements like hydrogen. Within stars, once they ignite the fusion process, they create heavier elements, helium and, and heavier elements. Some very large stars explode. I think we have an image of a supernovae on the screen. Uh, supernova, and when they explode, they fling into the universe all these heavy elements, gold and carbon and, and iron and lots of other things that are fundamentally the building blocks of life here on Earth as we know it. The planets uh, in this, this disk of matter that are swirling around the stars, will, because of gravity, will coalesce together, some into rocky planets like Earth. Um, th these verses talk about water, which is fascinating to me because we now understand, looking out at the universe, that water comprises a much greater percentage of the universe than we originally thought it did. And we, th you think we have a lot of water here on Earth, right? In the oceans, yeah, there's a lot of water. In the skies, rivers, lakes. There's one moon on the solar, in the solar system, a moon of Jupiter called Europa, which is what you're looking at right now, that scientists now believe contains more water locked up in its ice, icy cover 
and in its 100-mile-deep uh, moon-wide ocean than all the water that exists on planet Earth. There's more of it in this one moon of Jupiter. And scientists are also now, I'm, I've been reading a spate of articles, they're talking about dark matter. So I don't know if you, you're aware of what dark matter is. And scientists aren't aware of what it is. They're not sure exactly what dark matter is. They know it's there because they can see its gravitational influence on the galaxies and on, on the stars. And that's why the universe is still expanding. It's actually expanding at an ever greater rate. And that's because of the dark matter that's out there. What dark matter is, they don't know. But lately, they've been talking about how it has characteristics of a fluid, which is really interesting, because when Genesis talks about the waters separating above and beneath, you see God separating out waters. And a lot of people are asking the question, could dark matter be primarily water in all its forms, ice, liquid, or, or gaseous? They don't know. We don't know what we don't know, and there's a lot that we don't know yet, but it could possibly be water. And on the topic of science and how it kind of changes its opinion, um, this book by Thomas Kuhn I'd recommend to you. I read it in college. It's called The Nature of Scientific Revolutions. Great read. And it just talks about how science frequently changes its perspective as they learn more. So if you're interested in that, take note. So the truth is, I mentioned we don't know what we don't know, right? And uh, dark matter is one of those things. Um, that's why the language in Genesis is so interesting to me about God gathering those elements together. Now, the next image I want to show you um, is a very recent thing. I think about two weeks ago, uh, this photo was taken. If you guys are familiar with the James Webb Space Telescope, it's kind of the follow-up on the Hubble, right? Much, much more powerful. It's currently the best window into the universe that we have. And this is, this is an image. Um, and scientists calculate, this, you'll find this probably hard to believe, and I've had arguments with my son-in-law while we travel about this, but many scientists have calculated that there are more stars in the known universe than there are grains of sand on the seashores of all the, the oceans of the world, which is a number so big you can't envision it. But they, they get that by taking the estimated number of galaxies and the average number of stars, multiplying that out, and then they can calculate somehow how much sand there is in the, on the seashores of the oceans of the world. Trillions and trillions and trillions of stars out there in the universe. And this photo is taken, it's called the, uh, the Deep Field Photo by the James Webb Telescope. And it's, speaking of the grain of sand, it's actually the size of a grain of sand that you would hold out at arm's length against the sky. And they found a, an area of sky that looked relatively blank. And they, they focused the James Webb Telescope on it and they took this image. And what you're seeing in this image is the bright things are stars in our own galaxy, but all the other stuff behind it are hundreds of galaxies. Each of those galaxies has probably 100 to 200 billion stars. Our own, our own galaxy has that estimated amount. Some are much larger than our galaxy. We see galaxies out there that have trillions of stars. And even our neighboring galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, is, is, is twice the size probably of our galaxy. The two are slowly drifting together. By the way, we're going to meet in about four billion years. You, you can be prepared for that. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. <laughs> and uh, you, I mean, it probably won't, won't affect us unless we get flung out into space or something like that. But um, the Andromeda, Andromeda galaxy is, uh, our galaxy here is about, it would take you, if you were to, able to travel at the speed of light, which is impossible, it would take you something like 110,000 years to cross our own galaxy. And the Andromeda galaxy is twice that large. There are galaxies that are four million light years across out there that we know of. So let's, uh, one other thing I want to say, um, 
we're all sitting here thinking we're sitting pretty still, right? I appreciate how you guys are listening. Because <laughs> I know this is, this is trivial, weird trivial stuff. But we think we're sitting still. The reality is we're moving. We're moving at a great rate of speed. We're rotating around our planet. Our planet's rotating around the sun. The sun is tr rotating around the center of the galaxy. And even our galaxy is traveling. And uh, scientists have calculated that even though we think we're just sitting here, we're traveling. Anybody have a guess how fast? 1.4 million miles per hour. You think you're sitting still. <laughs> you're zipping along. 1.4 million miles an hour. And I know you're thinking, wow, that's fast. I wish this sermon would move faster. So I'm going to jump back to the scripture. <laughs> so in Hebrew, in, in uh, Psalm 19, one, the word that we read for speech is the word omer in Hebrew. And it's not speech like I'm talking about here, not me giving a speech. It's something much more profound than that. And whenever scripture uses that word, frequently it's used with the idea of God declaring truth to us, him making a, a declaration of truth. And it's also very similar and tied into, you've read in John 1, uh, the, the word was, what, was God and the word was with God, and that's talking about Jesus. And, and one of the key names and characteristics for Jesus is that he communicates, he omers, he declares what God is like to us. We look at Jesus and we can know what God is like by looking at Jesus, right? And I think the contradiction that we talked about in verses one and two, um, they pour forth speech, but they don't say anything, what we read there. I think the psalmist is acknowledging that He's not talking about literal speech here, something you can hear with your ears or read with your eyes, but it's speech that you can experience in your heart. And that's what I experienced that night in Pennsylvania, standing out and looking up at the stars and then looking down at the fireflies. I experienced God speaking to my heart, not with words, but it's powerful speech. It's a speech that we can experience. And despite their seeming silence, the expanse and all that it contains including mushrooms, pours forth speech, right? So I had to ask myself the questions. Uh, first, what does that speech do? Well, Psalm 19 says it declares the glory of God. That's the purpose of this communication. And so how do, and obviously the, uh, the night sky does a phenomenal job at that. I mean, you, even scientists who don't believe in God look at the amazing universe at its magnitude and its depth and all the fantastic things in it, and they say, it's, it's so marvelous, it's so wonderful. And they, they acknowledge that the universe deserves respect. But how do mushrooms declare the glory of God? <laughs> I'm going to name four ways. And um, they, those four ways are the beauty and awe of the fungal world, the design and order of the fungal world, and the provision of the fungal world, and finally, the dignity of the fungal world. And I might add a fifth as we go along that, that's related. Dignity of the fungal world. Mushrooms have dignity. We'll talk about that. I'm going to touch on each of these very briefly. I'm going to show you, just, just for awe and beauty, I'm going to show you a little slideshow here real quick. about There are mushroom photographers out there who take pictures, just their full-time job is taking pictures of mushrooms. And these are fabulous and beautiful. And I've seen a lot of these mushrooms out in the wild, and I'll sit and take pictures of them with my, my uh, cell phone. I, they don't look anything like this, but uh, they look pretty cool. Isn't that cute? <laughs> and the next one, which... I don't know if you can see that little frog sitting on top of that mushroom. I thought that was pretty cool. I have seen this mushroom out there. It's Actually, these mushrooms I've grown in my, my backyard, and they're good to eat. They're called shaggy parasols. <laughs> so 
So that's design, that's uh, beauty and awe. In terms of design and order, I'm going to tell you a quick story about the mushrooms that I do grow in my backyard called, called um, uh, oyster mushrooms. And they have a very unique characteristic. So, and, and this is, Ryan, you were talking about how you use mushrooms to share the gospel. This is a key way I've been able to talk to people that I've, as I've been uh, a gig economy driver driving people in my car. And they often ask about mushrooms. They usually want to know about magic mushrooms. And I try to get them on other mushrooms. <laughs> and, uh, and, but here's the conversation I have with them. We talk about oyster mushrooms. An oyster mushroom only grows in dying hardwood. And I grow them in my backyard in, in little three-foot lengths of maple, dead maple, and I, I uh, put spores in there so they start growing in the maple. And in oak, they love to grow in oak. Sometimes you can walk around. I've found them at the park right down the street here growing out of dead, dead wood. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, oyster mushrooms require nitrogen to survive, and there's no nitrogen in, in dying wood. So what are, they, what are they doing there? How do they get their nitrogen? These oysters do something really interesting you can see in this photo. They send out millions of little tendrils called mycelium. And the tendrils of this particular mushroom have, at many points, you see and that thing in the middle is a worm. It's a microscopic worm called a nematode. There's billions of them in a piece of, of dying wood, right? And so these tendrils have little uh, nodules on them that you can see in this photo that are, are bait sacs, and they emit a bait attractant specifically designed for nematodes. And then what happens is the nematode smells that, and like, mmm, that smells good, and he swims over to the little tendrils, he and they have little loops, and he swims through those little loops, and guess what happens when he... The mushroom, which is carnivorous, it's a mushroom, tightens the noose and traps that nematode, and then it uses the tendrils to invade its bodily orifices. Sorry to be so graphic. And it harvests the nitrogen in the worm it just trapped. This is a mushroom. Now, there's, there's 20 or 30 things at the cellular uh, microscopic level that have to be happening there at once. If you, pull, if you remove any one of those 20 or 30 things, that process doesn't work. Doesn't catch a nematode. The mushroom dies, can't live in hardwood. So the question I ask people in my car is, really, it's astronomically impossible for all those 20 things to have happened by accident at once, right, in that mushroom. Just, and, and, and science tells us, well, that's how it happened, it's all accidental and, and so forth and so on. No. Uh, if, if they don't buy that, I, I move on to uh, the genetic code, DNA. Now, if, if you know anything about DNA, you know it's an instruction manual about how we, as organisms, function, right? And same, all living organisms have DNA, and that instruction manual would be, you know, a stack of paper, a huge stack, of like 80,000 pages or something like that, with detailed instructions on how that organism is supposed to work. That's replicated trillions of times within the cells of our body, with almost perfect, not always perfect, but almost perfect replication. And I'm a writer, and I know when I see a big instruction manual, <laughs> complicated manual, somebody wrote that manual, right? There's an author, and there's an author with our DNA. So my challenge to the people that uh, with in my car is, these things are designed, we're designed, we're not accidents. And then they say, I say, who do you think did, did that design? And they say, well, was it aliens? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, who designed the aliens? <laughs> we have that conversation. <laughs> so our culture tries to tell us things like that happen by random chance, but I think common sense, you can look at it and, and see that that's not so. That's design and order of the mushroom world. Moving on to the provision of the mushroom world. Of course, there's edible mushrooms, which are amazing. That's provision. Um, I brought a hat 
that my son gave me. This is made by a Romanian artist out of 100% mushrooms. You can wear mushrooms. That's provision, right? It's the warmest hat I own. It's, it's really great. And uh, this material, it's called Amadou, um, has been around for thousands of years. They found it in the, in the uh, belongings of very ancient travelers. Uh, there was a, uh, an ancient, an ice man that they found buried in the ice somewhere in Europe that had this in his belongings because it, it's used as fire starter. It's very, very flammable. My wife says, please don't wear that around the campfire. <laughs> I would go up. Okay, um, dignity. The dignity of the fungal world. There's the one I know, uh, Crystal, and you want me to unpack, right? <laughs> You have to respect mushrooms, right? And we, we mentioned you have to know what you're picking. You have to learn that. You have to have 100% identification. If you don't, you make a bad mistake. You're not going to have a good day, right? Um, there, there are three different mushrooms. You eat one, it can kill your liver, and then you have to get a new liver, and that wouldn't be a pleasant experience. You want to make sure you're eating the right mushrooms, so you have to really know what you're looking for. You have to respect the mushrooms. And, and we have to respect all of creation in the same way. You have to respect mushrooms. You have to respect other stuff, right? creation around us. Um, closely related to this idea of respect is humor. I see that God builds a lot of humor into uh, things he creates. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And mushrooms are a great example of that. I'm going to give you one example. This is a picture of my granddaughter, Annabelle, who's now 11. This is kind of an old picture, but uh, they live in Pennsylvania on the farm. The mushroom that she's holding is actually a fairly small version of a, a puffball, giant puffball mushroom. It's called Calvatia gigantica, which means, in Latin, which means giant head, right? <laughs> and uh, I've seen actually ones the size of basketballs. She found this on the farm. She was very excited. She now won't touch mushrooms, but uh, this mushroom actually is, is very tasty, cut into slices. If it's big enough, you can make pizza dough out of it. It absorbs, it's kind of like tofu, it absorbs whatever flavor it's in. Uh, here on the, on the West Coast, they don't grow anywhere near, near that big, and they have a different, the, the, uh, the genus has a different name, it's called uh, Lycoperdone, and this is what I find humorous. So these things only grow on the, the rocky paths. They don't grow out in the forest. They just grow on the hard, rocky paths. And it's a perfect place for little boys like me at heart, who see them to stomp on them. Because what happens when you stomp on a puffball, if you've ever done it, greenish-brown smoke comes exploding out. It makes a huge, smoky explosion. It's very cool, right? For boys at heart, it's very cool. The name Lycoperidon is what I find humorous. Lyco in Latin is wolf, and perdon is the word that you would use if you farted in public. <laughs> I'll bet you never heard that word in a sermon either before. This is my last invitation here, I'm sure. <laughs> so you put the, the lycoperidone, you put that together, and it's wolf farts. That's the name of this mushroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, let's jump to John 1 real quick. I'm going to get beyond this. <clears throat> I'll, and Actually, let's read this one together, if you would read with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that brings me to the real point of my message. We've talked about the creator of the universe. These verses tell you who that is. It's Jesus. He had his hand in creation on the, uh, the most amazing, huge, far-flung galaxies in the universe, in the expanse. And he created the tiniest organisms, like, like fungi. 
and he created you, and he created me. And all of those things were designed to declare his glory, to declare the, the glory of God. And it's interesting when you think about it because um, really the heavens can't help but declare the glory of God. They just do it, right? That's what they're there for. Mushrooms do what they do. It's interesting, they declare the glory of God. Uh, you and I were made in God's image. We have a moral choice. We have a choice whether or not to declare the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do, but do we always do it? And, and as I was preparing this sermon, I'll tell you, I was under a lot of conviction because my words, I don't always declare the glory of God. I often, you know, I say mean things. I can be petty. Um, I can gripe and complain <laughs> about my circumstances. Um, I do a lot of things other than declare the glory of God, but what God created me to do is to declare the glory of God. And the good news is I can... I can start fresh. I can repent. Each of us has the opportunity here at this moment to say, Lord, I confess I haven't used my tongue in the way that I should, and I'd like to be better. I'd like you, to, through your Holy Spirit, to empower me to declare your glory. If Ephesians 4.29, I love this verse. It challenges me. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. We're to build up others, and we're to build up God. We're to magnify him. That's what scripture calls that. And, and we cannot, it's not possible for us to say, to describe God in his glory, to, to as glorious as he is. That's beyond us. But man, we should be trying. We should be coming close. We should be praising him, right? That's what we do here on Sundays as we sing, and throughout the week, I would just encourage you to find new ways to do what God created you to do and to declare the glory of God. And we're going to start just by praying as we end this. And I'm praying for myself, and I invite you to join me and allow God to change us so that we can declare his glory. Father God, who created the universe, the earth within it, and all that is on it, fungal and microscopic life forms, plant life, animal life, and even us, we bring you praise in recognition that we and all around us are wonderfully and fearfully made. Thank you for all the wonders you have created, for the way your creation brings you glory and majesty. Thank you for your provision for us in what you've created. May we never take it for granted, and may we always respect and steward that which you've called us to care for. We understand that an important part of our stewardship is also using the voice which you've given us as free moral agents created in your image to declare your glory, to magnify and bring you praise, and to build others up rather than tear them down. And so often, I confess that I use my voice for opposite purposes, and for this, O oh Lord, I gratefully receive your forgiveness, and I ask that through your Holy Spirit you would help me to do better. And then finally, Lord, uh, if there's anyone here today who has never yet committed that ultimate act of praise and worship, receiving the gift of your forgiveness given freely on the cross, and committing their hearts and lives to your lordship, may they do so today without hesitation and begin that new life as your child. We thank you, Lord, that together as your people we can praise you for the awesome and creative God that you are a God who loves us more than we can possibly know or imagine and who wishes to be in intimate fellowship with us for the rest of our days here on earth and in eternity beyond. In Jesus' precious and abiding name we pray, amen. And then I'm going to give you one other quick invitation as the worship team starts doing its thing.
Um, I've, I've started a uh, mushroom hunting group on our, our neighborhood website called Nextdoor, if you're familiar with that. There's a group on there, and I've invited my neighbors to join me in the fall. We go together, take two-hour forays up on the, on the foothills of Mount Rainier. It's about an hour and a quarter to the southeast of us. We have a blast. I've been doing it for, for several years. Some of you have already uh, participated in this. Uh, one of you, I think I've even lost in the woods. Mary Price, if you're still with us, I'm grateful. <laughs> I promise I won't lose you in the woods. I learned my lesson. But if you come, you can join in with, with neighbors from the community and explore the, God's nature together and, and just have, I've had great, wonderful times of talking with some of my neighbors as we just walked through the woods. So if you're interested in that, please reach out to me. Let's connect and let me know. I'd love to have you join. Thank you.